0: Hey there, language lovers. Shannon Kennedy here, co-host of the Language Hacking Podcast, along with Benny Lewis. And in this episode, we're talking to Brittany, a fluent in three months challenge participant who learned Japanese with us in 90 days. And if you too would like to have a 15-minute conversation in a new language, you can join us in the challenge. Learn more at languagehacking.com slash challenge. In our chat with Brittany, we go over how the speaking from day one approach works ways to stay engaged in your language learning, the power of scripting as a language learning tool, the impact of community in language learning, and strategies for overcoming perfectionism. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast or the podcast in general, we always appreciate hearing from you. You can leave us a review at languagehacking.com slash review. It not only lets us know what you enjoy most and what we should keep doing, but also helps other language learners like yourself find the podcast. All of the resources, links, and everything else mentioned in this episode are available to you as a part of the show notes. Now let's get into our chat with Brittany.
1: The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 71.
0: Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everyone. Shannon Kennedy here, along with my co-host Benny Lewis for another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. And today we're chatting with Brittany, who is a fluent in three months challenge participant, finalist, and she learned Japanese with us as a part of the 90-day challenge. So we're going to be talking to her about her experience learning the language and her experience in the challenge. So let's jump right into it. Brittany, how did you get into language learning?
1: I guess I always had a bit of an interest in it. Like, you know, in here in the U.S., they make you learn some language, like when you're in elementary school or middle school, I think. Yeah, my school, we did it early. So I think I started to learn Spanish when I was about in fifth grade. And at the time, I thought it was really cool just knowing a different language. It was really exciting. Yeah, from there, I, I guess it kind of continued. I was always really interested in other people's cultures. So... I think I always had an interest, even when I was a kid. And then how did
2: that develop to your Japanese story? Because obviously how you learned Japanese was very different to how you learned your Spanish in school.
1: Oh, that. (laughs) I I guess in in school, I, I always found learning like Spanish, like so frustrating. It was like we never practiced talking. All we really would do was would just be doing really basic things like, yeah, like here's a vocabulary list. And we're going to maybe watch some movies that you probably won't really understand. And uh, yeah, we're also going to read in Spanish. And, you know, I found a lot of that stuff just kind of infuriating, I guess, for for how it was being taught. And And I guess back then it was sort of like Spanish is okay, But if I had to choose a different language to learn again, probably Spanish would not be my first pick. So at the same time, when I was a kid, I was really into Japanese culture. But at the time, I just hadn't thought like, oh, yeah, I could totally learn Japanese. It wasn't really a thought in my head. But um, when I got to college, I had the chance to take Japanese from like another school that was nearby since my school was in like a little... They call it the consortium, so you could go to other people's uh, colleges and pick classes if you really wanted to. So, I had some extra spots, and I was like, you know what? I want to try to do Japanese. And I guess that's kind of what got the ball rolling for me on that part.
0: And how did all of this lead you to the challenge ultimately?
1: Yeah, so (laughs) that's a long story, but basically, it, it was like I went to the college class. It was really helpful. It was a lot better than what I had in high school, but. Again, I feel like in schools, they're just doing your grades based on how well you can memorize vocabulary or send structures or, or grammar, things that you can actually test. So after school, I kind of tried to study by myself, but I don't really think it went all that well. It was just sort of me <laughs> trying to look at my old textbooks or, or um, trying to do things like you know, watch anime or like movies and stuff like that by myself. And I just didn't really have a clear guidance system or guidelines. I didn't really know what I was doing, but then I stumbled upon, um, you know, the food in three months blog. And he was like, Oh, like, you should go out and talk to people. It's like, huh, you know what? I should try that. So, (laughs) you know, I had like my, my tapes, you know, my parents, I got me a long time ago for Christmas, start listening to those. And I would just try to go out in public and just, practice stuff with those tapes whenever I heard people I thought speaking Japanese and oftentimes people were pretty friendly but over time I realized eh, that's not enough so <laughs> I actually started to uh, get a tutor and that kind of began where you know how I got started basically found a tutor practice with them then I got to the conversation exchange website and I met some friends there and we started to practice speaking.
2: So like ultimately what do you think would have been the biggest differences that made uh, made sure that you actually had something to show for your Japanese compared to that original Spanish experience?
1: I, I guess basically having, I would say having things that I was interested in. I, I think my main problem with Spanish was just I'm learning stuff I just didn't really care about. It was just really kind of dull just, yeah, we're just going to re- keep repeating these exercises. And yeah, we're going to read this crazy, <laughs> it was a really crazy book in, in Spanish. something like Bodas de Sangre. It's like blood wedding or, or something like that. And it's like, I don't understand what's happening and I don't really care to figure out what's happening. But um, when I joined the challenge and I started to learn Japanese um, using those guidelines, it was a lot more fun because it was this oh, here are the things that people should know about me. Like when I talk to them and here are the things I'm already interested in Japanese that I can also use, you know, to study. So I felt like I had this better guidance and just, you know, I was fueled by my own curiosity and not so much what someone else thinks I should have been learning.
0: What are some of the things that you learned about yourself as a language learner while taking part in the challenge?
1: I'd say basically that I could not survive in school if I ever had to go back. <laughs> I think that was my one takeaway. I was thinking to myself, like, wow, how did I how did I survive school before? It's just sitting at a desk, <laughs> taking notes all day long. And then, you know, I realized I hate taking notes. I hate doing flashcards. I hate doing so many things that are just you're forced to do in school. So when I was taking the challenge, I realized... Like, oh, you know what? I I need to be out there talking to people, whether that's in like study groups or other people learning the same thing or talking to friends or like talking to tutors. I I guess I figured I'm more of like a, I don't know how you say that, like a kinesthetic learner. Like I need to have lots of things going for me at once because I get so bored and restless if I'm just told, hey, I go read this book of grammar. I'd be like, I can't, I can't really do this. I can only do this for maybe like, I don't know, five minutes before I just gave up. So I like to have things be more active and I like to be a part of like a community to keep me going. So I I think those are really like two important things I figured out when I was doing that challenge.
2: That's interesting because like when people think of seriously studying a language, they picture in their brains that you're sitting down at a grammar book, that you're doing flashcards, the kind of things that you've discovered are just completely not compatible with your learning style. And something you've said in the challenge is that it's actually helped you to learn how to seriously study. So how does that work for you? How, how can you, uh, how have you found your serious study methods and how has that evolved out of this experience?
1: Uh, for me, I, I would say that again, it comes down to the engagement. Like if you're studying something you don't really care about, I don't think you're going to make it very far. So. I really just found ways to keep myself interested in what was going on. So having a person as opposed to like a textbook or a flashcard that keeps me engaged and it keeps me like focused. Cause I can't, I can't really zone out if someone's talking to me, <laughs> I'm trying my best to keep up with the conversation because there is, you know, active response time there. It just, you know, you have to respond. And, um, I, I guess having a person there, I think that made a difference. And basically too, it's like, you know, I, I would write scripts a lot and using like the script builders that you guys gave in the, in the challenge. It was really helpful. Cause it was just like, okay, here are the things I should say to people. Here's what I want to talk about to people. So I would just basically write down the things I had in my head and see if it worked. I'd ask a friend or a tutor to like correct it. See if it was right. And then I would take those things and I would go to the next four or five people I knew. He <laughs> would have the same conversation over and over again until you know it, it really stuck. So I, I think, and that in a way, I mean, sure, it was repetition, but not really repetition, because I kept talking to different people and all the people I would speak to would always have a different reaction, or they would they might even tell me, like, oh, hey. You can say this in this way also. So I learned a couple of different ways of saying things too. So it was more fun. It was more interesting to do that as opposed to just looking at textbooks because with Japanese, it's so so limiting with textbooks. They're basically like, hey, you need to say this the polite way, <laughs> and you never learn anything casual. So it was really good to break out of that.
0: You've mentioned in your answers a few times now how community has impacted your language learning. Can you go into a little bit more detail on that?
1: Uh, Yeah, before the challenge, I was basically trying to learn Japanese by myself. And I I feel like you just don't really get very far if you're trying to do something alone. Because, I mean, I didn't really know anyone or have any friends or family that would be really interested in learning languages like I am, like, seriously trying to that so i have I, I know some people that would be like yeah i, I want to learn spanish and i'd ask like okay like what are you doing for it and it's like oh well, i don't know i just like read a book or something it's like but you said you wanted to talk so you're not going to go talk to anyone like you have a couple of friends that we know that they speak spanish it's like oh no no, no. i don't i don't want to sound bad in front of them so i was like OK, <laughs> so, you know, I didn't really have anyone I could lean on for support in that way or even just like you know, complain about stuff like, oh, man, this is kind of hard. or How would I get out of this situation? But um, like taking the challenge, I was really cool because you're even if the people in the challenge aren't even studying the same language as you, like you're still doing the same thing. Basically, you're all trying to figure out how to learn whatever target language you have going in. You know, you can get tips and resources and, and advice from people who have been doing this perhaps longer than you or, you know, if they're at the same level as you, you know, it's really good to have some support.
2: And it sounds like this whole experience has really boosted your confidence. So, like, how, how has that developed? Because, like like you said, for a lot of learners, you might say, well, you want to speak, so go speak to these people. But there's a huge lack of confidence there. So how have you, ca- how have you grown this confidence through this experience?
1: Yeah, I think my confidence grew a lot since before. It it just felt like I was going nowhere with this. So uh, I think basically the best thing I got from this was just learning how to be consistent. I think that was a big cornerstone of my confidence because I'm the type of person who has like so many interests and so many things I want to try out that oftentimes I just don't follow through. And I used to be more of like a perfectionist thinking like, oh, I, I have to do everything perfectly and if I can't get it perfect I have to start everything over and you know when you're doing this type of challenge it's like you're you're probably going to miss days something will come up it'll be tired maybe you'll have work or who knows what will come up and you have to miss days but you know I learned that even if you have to you know not study perfectly every single day like five minutes is better than no minutes, right? <laughs> so I think that was really important for me to learn. And then just being able to dip your um, dip your toes into things, I think that was really important too. Like before, I think I would usually just kind of stick to the same people to practice with and maybe just stick to the simple things I already knew. But uh, you know there were moments where I tried to do different things and I would join other groups like, in my town, there's like a, a meetup and there's like a special Japanese Boston group. So I tried to go to some of those meetings. And like the first time, I was scared, petrified out of my mind because there's so many people there. But um, it was really cool because they would split you up into rooms. So they're like the beginners and the advanced and then like the intermediate people. So yeah, I actually made a lot of progress just hanging out in those rooms because, you know, I got to practice a lot listening. I, I got to meet some new people and. You know, even if I didn't understand everything, we would work on understanding stuff together. So it wasn't as intimidating and terrifying you know, as I thought it would be. So I, I think it was just really important just to try to get yourself out there <laughs> and be able to be confident, even if you look kind of like stupid or, or silly at times.
0: So we've talked a bit about how the challenge has impacted your strategies as a language learner, but you're also an English teacher. And would you say that taking part in the challenge has had any influence on the way that you teach now, having done the challenge?
1: Yeah, I'd say so, definitely. Um, I think if you're really, 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 really wanting to learn how to speak, then you definitely need to go out and speak it. So, yeah. And, you know, I started to realize some of the issues that would come up with certain people I had in my classes. like, for example, there's always this one kid in my class and he would always sit there with an electronic dictionary and, you know, you would ask him a question <laughs> and he'd just like, sit there, pause with his hand up, like, hold on a second. And then he'd open the electronic dictionary as if he's trying to find every single little word. And for me, that just drove me insane because <laughs> it's like, you need to spit it out. You know, just spit it out, say it. And if it's wrong, we can, you know, we can go over it. We can correct it. But, you know, there's lots of people who tried to be very perfectionistic about, you know, saying things the right way, doing things the right way. And another example, too, is when I had like an intermediate level, it was a communications class. And basically, most of my class, they were on the ball, ready to go talk, snap, 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 answer, answer. I mean, and they were not, you know, perfect English speakers by any means, but they're always very active and willing to talk. And then at my school, we would always get an influx of new students and we'd have to figure out where to place them level wise. So we'd mix classes a lot. So week by week, you wouldn't really have the same people. So I ended up getting a few new people are the types of people who very quiet, very grammatically inclined one of them scored the highest on the grammar test they were advanced level grammar but because his speaking ability was so low they had to put him in an intermediate class because he just wasn't talking and I'm like you can understand the grammar but if you can't communicate those ideas he's going to struggle in that class so they put him in my class and it would it would just kill me. And I think it would probably kill my, the rest of my students more <laughs> because, you know, they're really nice people, but they just did not like waiting for that guy. If we had to ask him a question, cause I always try to get everyone talking. Because you say, okay, you ask a basic yes or no question. <laughs> and he would just sit there <laughs> and it would just say, no, 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 no. Yes or no. <laughs> we don't need to contemplate here. Just yes or no. So based on the challenge I realized, yeah, it's really important just to get out there and and start speaking. It does not have to be perfect. It does not have to be right. I mean, when I talk to my friends, I know my grammar is backwards and I'm still working on it, but I can still get my point across where they can understand me. So I think being understood is way more important than trying to be correct all the time.
2: So for someone like that student who is so grammar obsessed and can even score perfect in the exams... But that perfectionism is keeping them locked in a box with the lack of confidence to just get speaking, which, as you've said, and of course, I agree with you that that spoken practice, even when your grammar is backwards, is so crucial. So how can you get somebody out of that box? Like, what would you do with a student like that to to nudge them towards speaking, even when every second they're thinking, but I have to overanalyze this and I have to use my electric, electric dictionary and I have to get all these advanced grammar rules and know them back to front. So, wh- how can we get out of this this vicious cycle?
1: I would try to get them some friends, I and mean, that's what I recommend a hundred percent. And you know, before before I ended up teaching, because again, I was really interested in Japanese culture. Um, there was a really cool program that was offered like in my town basically they're like hey you can join this program and you can be basically like a cultural ambassador for like japanese women who are also in college so you can exchange and you can basically just show them like oh this is what american culture is like and i thought wow this is really cool and i get paid to just hang out with people awesome so i did it and what i noticed there is the same same kind of problem <laughs> like uh, i think culturally a lot of my friends have told me that japanese people who want to learn english usually very shy and a lot of them just don't get very far because of that lack of confidence. And I saw it. We went to this whole big assembly and the, the, I guess like the lead teacher of that school had asked all the students, all the Japanese students, okay, who here can speak English? Very slowly only one person (laughs) out of hundreds of girls rose their hand and he had to tell them like, okay, I didn't ask who can speak English perfectly. (laughs) You all can speak English. so I'm going to ask you again. (laughs) And then everyone raised their hand, you know, and my group was kind of the same problem because, you know, they said, if you know Japanese, don't speak it. We want you to speak English to them. So, you know, I would try to speak English to them. My group was three. And it was very interesting how it started at the beginning because two of the girls were not really confident in their English speaking ability, but one girl was. So she turned into the lead ambassador <laughs> of the group. So I'd ask a question like, hey, like you guys want to go get grab pizza or something? And then. The two of them would look at each other and they look to the other girl and they discuss something and then the lead girl would be like, okay, yes, we'd like to go get pizza. And I was like, okay, we, we have to break this up somehow. <laughs> so over time, I just kept talking to them this more and more and more often. Like when they would try to pull that and make the one girl speak, I'd be like, so what do you think? <laughs> was, no, no, we're not going to use you as <laughs> the way out of this conversation that you're too afraid to have. So I would kind of push them in situations versus me Or sometimes they would come over to my house and they'd have to interact with my family. So that got them to speak more. So just slightly nudging them is out of that comfort zone. And I I think doing activities that kind of pull you away from thinking, I have to do this perfectly. I think that really helps. If you have someone that's like, like really like a friend, (laughs) not so much like a teacher or someone you're trying to impress. I think that would really help get someone out of that zone.
0: On a related note, you had mentioned perfectionism a few times and how you've worked to get over your perfectionism to kind of put yourself out there more. But as a recovering perfectionist, I know that dropping your desire for everything to be perfect isn't easy and it's a continuous battle. So what are some of the things that you've done to work past and overcome a need to be perfect?
1: Uh, I know they say not to compare yourself to others, but sometimes I do. Like when I talk to my friends, because we're both like, we we do a cultural exchange or language exchange. So they're learning English. I'm learning Japanese. So I always think like, well, the people I'm talking to, they're not speaking perfect English. I'm not speaking perfect Japanese. So That's okay. (laughs) I'm not talking to, I don't know, someone that's like 100% fluent. So basically what I would sometimes do when we talk, it's kind of helpful is if I look out for my mistakes and see what type of errors I make. And then I also listen to what types of mistakes that they're making when they're speaking English. And in some ways I find that kind of helpful just so I can like reframe myself and just refocus on, okay, we can fix these things, but also it's okay. (laughs) I know these will be some of the reoccurring problems that we'll see over and over again. And I'll keep that as a lingering thought in the back of my mind. (laughs) But um, I try not to get so hung up on little, little things until I figure "Eh, maybe I'll get to a higher level and I'll come back to those things. But in the meantime, We focus on helping each other make maybe not so huge grammatical errors that kind of makes things really hard to understand. Like I would do this when trying to read, (laughs) read books or just read text in Japanese. Like I realized if I would just sit there and stop at every single word, I would never finish the book. So what I would start to do, I would just hone in on one thing I kept seeing over and over and over again. And I would think, okay, that's a word I should probably know. So I'll go look that word up because it seems like it's really important. So I I think to curb some of that perfectionism and not make it so overwhelming, because I think it's kind of going to be a present part (laughs) if you're really recovering from it. I think it's just, let's focus on one thing that we can work on. And ignore everything else. <laughs> that's how I get by it. Because if I sit there, like that's not right, and that's not right, and that's not right, and that's not right. No, no, no. Let me focus on one thing that I can probably fix sooner rather than later. And we'll work on that. And we'll come back to the other stuff later.
2: So you were just saying that as needed, you might hear a word. And if you hear it enough times, you'd go look that up. But I know you, you have a, a certain kind of love-hate relationship with dictionaries. So how do you how do you tie that in? And wh- where does that come from? And how do you work around it?
1: Oh my god! Like the thing with the dictionaries, and I, I, point, I remember it so well with that kid in my class because I used to be that kid in my Spanish class. <laughs> I didn't understand what was going on in this book that we had, and I would open up my my Spanish dictionary and look up every single word. So I think that just grates on me because you know I could have been using that time to you know speak or try to infer stuff. So. And back then, the problem was we didn't get to choose the material that we were studying. It was what the teacher chose. And I didn't find that book all that interesting and didn't find all the stuff that we were watching that interesting either. But when I, you know, I took a different approach with Japanese after doing the challenge because I realized, you know what? I can actually use the stuff I already like and care about, <laughs> you know, to to do that. I'm willing, I'm more willing to look up something I don't know if I'm watching an anime or playing a, a Japanese video game because that doesn't grate on me and for the most part It's people talking in a casual way that makes sense <laughs> So you can kind of begin to put pieces together and take a guess like I think this is what's going on and that is how I've gotten through many conversations where I don't really know what's happening, but I can put pieces of words together Sometimes I look up a word and I think, okay, I don't get the entire thing, but I want to guess and ask, did you mean this? I think we're talking about this. More often than not, that has been pretty accurate.
0: You've taken part in more than one challenge, and I'd love to know about your decision to come back and what it was, what made the second challenge different from your first challenge for you?
1: Uh, Yeah, so it was really exciting to get through the first challenge because it was just exciting for me. Like, wow, I finished something. I got to to the end of something and it's done and I can see significant results. And it was really awesome. And uh, yeah, I I think I was mainly just egged on by how well I had improved. So I wanted to do another challenge just to see if I could keep that momentum going. Because I mean, I've been trying to study by myself for like, years by that point. And then doing the challenge, it only took like three months and you're like, wow, what a difference. So, you know, I, I think I wanted to do just another three months of more focused, uh, focused studying. So I could say the first challenge was more or less like dipping my toe into the water for the first time, just trying to get a feel of how to actually learn a language since schools don't really teach that and you're just kind of floundering doing what everyone tells you to do. So Um, the first was more or less how I learned myself (laughs) or how I learned how to learn. Whereas the second challenge was more or less trying to buckle down on some problem areas that I had and wanted to push past because I think at a certain point, um, you kind of just want to hang out in that comfort zone once you've mastered enough and you don't really want to keep pushing. So I wanted to keep pushing myself a little more. So that's why I joined again with the advanced
2: and one of the powers of the the challenge is that it really helps you to to learn and hone a skill of consistency. So, like, how did you find your consistency in this challenge?
1: Um, I think it was pretty good. I mean, past me, you would have been like, oh, my God, it was horrible. <laughs> but, you know, I had to be realistic with myself. But I mean, a second challenge, I was a little like, oh, no, like I have all this stuff happening in my regular life and I couldn't really like commit to uh, studying as much as I would have liked. But I didn't really let that grade on me, like things like that before it would have really graded on me and I would have been hung up on that for so long. But um, second challenge. Yeah, I had to do like are <laughs> like redecorating my room and also starting to redecorate our house. So I was stuck doing that stuff for a bit, but, um, even though I wasn't like super duper seriously studying during that time, I was still engaging with materials that were Japanese and that I still liked. So, I was studying less, but I was still at the end studying. So I was still, yeah, still focused on it in a way. But I would still play my games regularly. I'd still listen to my music regularly. I'd listen to podcasts regularly. So I didn't feel like I was losing too much, even when I had to stop studying for a little bit.
0: Speaking of the resources that you were using earlier on, you had mentioned that when you first started trying to learn Japanese on your own, you were using your college textbooks without much success what resources as an independent language learner did you find success with um for me
1: um i was using what the japan podcast 101 i started with pimsleur that was really helpful just to get started wani kani like using that to practice kanji memorize i used memorize a lot
2: and you uh in your college i think you had a, a connector college connector program yeah. that um, was able to actually link you with native speakers how how did that work
1: uh so it was more it was more for them than us basically because they wanted them to practice english but uh it was really cool just because you got to take them to your college campus and show them what an american college took like since japanese colleges were pretty different and we basically got to do fun stuff together like one of the things they had asked me to do was like hey like let's go ice skating <laughs> I was like what and he was like you guys know how to ice skate and they're like no well actually first they lied to me they said yes we do know how to ice skate and then when we got to the rink I asked again and they said no maybe like one time i went ice skating and i have no idea i was like oh my god we're going to die on these ice skates but it was doing lots of fun things like that his hanging out at my college showing them what american college life was like doing fun activities like ice skating or um they had us go to their school and learn how to make origami and um we were talking about different foods and stuff and i had them over to my house for thanksgiving and christmas that was also like really interesting since Christmas in Japan is really different. And, uh, and I don't even think they have Thanksgiving in Japan. Not really. So they're very surprised and pretty interested in a whole lot of things. And I ended up learning some things about, uh, Japanese culture that I just didn't know before. Like pictures, like taking pictures are like really, like <laughs> really, really, really popular. And it was really funny because, um, like they had managed to get like my grandmother when she was still alive they managed to make her get in a picture no one in my house has been able had been able to get her to take a picture but they're very very insistent like oh come on you have to get in the picture you have to be in the picture (laughs) and I hadn't seen that from them before because you for a long time they just weren't really talking that much. Only that one leader of the group, she would be talking with all of them were like, oh, please could take this picture with us. Please take this picture. And I don't know how they did it, but they convinced my grandmother, who hates pictures. she had hated them to take the picture. And for me, that was like, wow, that's amazing. Like how important, <laughs> you know, our pictures over there.
0: Knowing a bit about the culture of the language you're speaking is, is really important as you kind of learned in your experience through the Connect program, but you are also really into using native resources like Japanese music and anime and things. How do you go about finding this sort of content and what sort of impact do you feel getting this cultural insight has on your language learning? Uh, honestly,
1: uh, I've been a fan of Japanese culture since I was a kid. So the earliest I had was anime. So I was as that was the only thing on tv after school you go home you're like oh cool like there's pokemon there's sailor moon back then you know it was in english in the english dubbing but um you know as i moved into teenage years started to learn more about just listening to japanese and then seeing the things with english subtitles so i hadn't thought to use them as a learning resource before but by the time I started to study by myself and then join the challenge, I ended up using those a lot. So I figured out how to basically do it. it was just, if the show had an English dub, and plenty of them do, like I would basically watch the English dub. Then I'd go back and then I'd watch it in Japanese. So I could basically figure out new words and like how to say things, just doing that over and over again so um for me i would just try to find tv shows that either i liked or shows that were more down to earth more about everyday things so i found a lot of really old but popular still ongoing shows like someone had recommended a show called chibi i think it was chibi mariko and it's basically about this little girl living her life in, in Japan, but the language is pretty casual. It's not over the top. <laughs> I mean, it's nothing, it's not about like crazy monsters or demons or all that stuff. So it made it really easy to understand just by heck, even just watching. Cause some of the, the shows don't even have subtitles, but it was very basic at times. So you weren't completely lost. So I look for shows like that and, uh, I guess I could say the same thing for video games too. Like uh, the video game I'm currently obsessed with, uh, the Judgment series, or Ryuga Gotoku. Um, Basically, they have English dubbing, but I always listen to the Japanese subs and they have the English subtitles at the bottom. So I'll listen to that and honestly just seeing it and listening to it over and over again. There are words that I could never remember by myself when I was studying Japanese, but I heard them so many times in that game. (laughs) It's so easy to remember them now. I will never, ever forget it. And even if I'm confused, I'll just ask my teacher or I'll ask some of my friends, like, Hey, like, what does that mean? (laughs) He was like, I've never heard this. It's very casual, you know? And it's so much fun just to be able to use those resources and, you know, ask people because um, it shows them that they're like you're really interested in learning about their culture. And, and <laughs> you always have fun talking because they're always like, how do you know about that? <laughs> and It's like, oh, well, it's in the game I was playing or it's in this show I was watching. And they're like, oh, wow, like that's cool. So I, and I think it, it helps, too, because it gives you like that talking point and then it gets people to open up to you. A lot more than if you didn't know anything about the culture. So it's, I know like so many random things <laughs> because I'm just a huge fan, and it kind of just leaked over into so many different things for my life that it's almost like pretty natural at this point. Like I love baseball. Baseball is huge in Japan, so even if one of my friends is like 60 years old. <laughs> this is a sixty-year-old Japanese man. Like we can talk about baseball, <laughs> you know. Like I know this player, that player, that player. It's like yeah, oh, they all play in Japan. These guys are very popular right now. I can talk about that. And for other friends, I could tell them about video games that are really popular, anime that are really popular, and uh, songs that everyone seems to know. Like a really popular group, like Ikimonogakari. Everyone knows them, so you can talk about them for forever because they're just really well known in Japan. Really popular. So I just basically <laughs> followed all of my interests and it kind of has been working out in my favor.
2: Excellent stuff. And I, get, I can hear your passion for everything in Japan as you're talking to us. Uh, so I'm curious, like, what are your long-term plans? Like, uh, do you plan to go spend a long chunk of time in Japan or are you going to continue to consume Japanese culture uh, where you are in Boston? Like, what 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 do you think, where do you see your language learning in the next few years?
1: Uh, Well, I I know at at some point I definitely need to stay there for at least a year. Like that's one of my, one of my goals. I have to go there and stay at least for a year. Um, That's really important because I don't think I would get enough if I just went over for like a short vacation or something. So that's probably one of my biggest goals is to get over there at some point. But um, I guess in the, in the meantime, I'm going to keep studying and hopefully raise myself to more of a C1 level because I think I'm around a B2 right now in terms of the progress I've made. So, yeah, basically making plans to <laughs> stay over for a year. And in the meantime, I'll, I'll just keep studying with the things I, I know how to do for right now. since um. Yeah. uh, Most of my friends are, are still over there. So I basically like to go visit them too. I actually met like a whole bunch of people. Um, Like when I was teaching, there was a whole classroom of Japanese girls. And some of them were like, Hey, like, let me know if you ever come to Japan. I was like, okay, I'll think about it. (laughs) So I met those girls and my friends who are still living in like Tokyo or um, Shibuya, they're still over there. So Yeah i like to meet them at some point. So yeah, I'm definitely going to go.
0: One of the questions that we like to ask all of our guests on the podcast, given that this is the Language Hacking Podcast, is what is your definition of language hacking? Uh, I guess
1: for me, it would be figuring out what works best for you and not listening to what other people tell you to do. I think that's been one of my biggest problems in life. It's been like, oh, well, the experts have said this, or your teacher has said, this is how you do this. So then you know, because I've been doing that for so long, I just didn't get the results I'd hoped for. But when I took this challenge, it really opened up my eyes. It's like, oh, you know what? I actually learn things differently from a lot of people, and I should be doing things that cater more towards my needs and not what someone else has said is the best way to do something. So, I, I think the faster you figure yourself out, the you know faster. You can hack a language
2: absolutely. the The more personal it is, the the more useful it is. There's never one approach that'll work for everybody. But um, this has been an absolutely fascinating talk. Thank you so much for sharing your story with us, your passion for Japanese. And it's great to know that the challenge has uh, been a part of your story to help you get to this incredible um, level that you've you've reached, and that someday you'll be going and spending a year in Japan. It's absolutely amazing
1: yeah thanks for having me and uh thanks for making the challenge like, if i didn't find your blog like <laughs> i wouldn't be here so thanks so much
2: definitely all right well thank you everybody for listening and until the next time we wish everybody a very happy language learning
0: happy language learning At the end of each episode, Benny and I like to share something that we learned in our discussion with our guest. And these are things that you can implement into your own language learning to try them out, see how they work for you, and hopefully come up with a better personalized language learning system. So, Benny, what was your takeaway from our chat with Brittany?
2: I know a lot of people listening uh, struggled with uh, perfectionism. And I really like what Brittany said for one way that she copes with it. I think. In isolation, when we are completely by ourselves, it's very easy to put everybody else on a pedestal and everyone else is doing better than me. Everyone else is smarter than me. All the other language learners, they never make mistakes. And I think there are so many uh, benefits to being part of some kind of a language learning community. And one of them that uh, Brittany mentioned is if uh, she's hanging out with other people, she'll notice that sometimes they'll make mistakes, too. And that really humanizes the entire process that uh, you're hearing these other people make mistakes. And it's not that you're thinking, oh, they're an idiot. You're thinking, oh, if they're making mistakes, it's okay if I make some mistakes too. And um, I think this is just such an overlooked aspect that perfectionism really is uh, strongest in isolation. And as we interact with other people, and like she said, she interacts with people in, in classrooms They find that once they just get out of their own little box of just, you know, I got to look every single word up or something like that, then you go and make that mistake and you'll see it's not the end of the world. You'll see other people are doing this. Other people are getting practice and they're making that mistake. So I really like that. She uh, really emphasized that one way to work around perfectionism is to interact with other people. What about you?
0: I would have to say it was her comments on how she builds confidence through consistency. And I think this is something really important because with confidence, a lot of the time it can feel like we're never going to get there. But when you are making sure that you're consistently practicing your language, you can actually see what you know building upon itself, especially if you're doing something to document your progress, like with the Fluent in Three Months Challenge, we have participants do videos. And I think that there's a lot of power in consistency because with consistent practice, you're having to review less, you're spending more time with the language, so it becomes a lot more familiar. You start to intuitively pick things up rather than having to like work really hard for each bit of knowledge that you gain in the language. And It just, there's just so many benefits to being consistent or resilient. And I think that we take consistency for granted when it comes to confidence. I think we think that confidence is unrelated and it's just a separate thing, but it's not so disconnected from consistent practice as you might imagine. And so I think you'll find that when you start to be more consistent and things start to seem more familiar, you start to think, hey, I can do this, or hey, I recognize this, hey, I understand this. And it makes it a lot easier to feel confident in your ability in the language. So that would be my takeaway for this episode. All right. So once again, if you enjoy this episode of the podcast, we appreciate hearing from you. Please let us know what you think at languagehacking.com slash review. And as always, all of the links and resources mentioned in this episode are available to you as a part of the show notes. Until the next time, happy language learning.
2: Happy language learning.
0: We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast.
1: Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis and Shannon Kennedy and produced by David Sobel. With special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team, the theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thanks for listening and happy language learning.